You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have continuously boasted, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected and us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and you have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. My name is Spencer Stewart, and I teach Bible classes in New Testament Greek at Veritas Christian School here in Lawrence. And I'm one of the disciples here at Free City, where our mission is to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's an honor to be here uh, speaking through Psalm 44 today. If you are new to our rhythm, we're glad you're here. And uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible and in between books and series. And in the summers, we grab some Psalms. And so Psalm 44 has been assigned to me today. And the heading says, to the director of the sons of Korah, a masculine. And that is a participle form of a verb that we would typically translate as making wise or causing understanding. It first appears as a heading in Psalm 32. And the same verbal root appears in 32.8 where it says, I will instruct you or I will cause you to understand. The Greek translation of masculine before the time of Christ uh, translated it as for understanding. For understanding. So 
this is, uh, this is labeled here for us as a wisdom psalm, a teaching psalm. And yet it is clearly a national lament. Psalm 42, 43, last week that Ethan preached on online uh, was an individual lament. And many of the words in it are repeated in 44. But there's this shift from I, me, my in 42, 43 to we, us, our in 44. For example, 43 asks, why have you rejected me? And 44 says, you have rejected us. Taunt me becomes taunt us. My oppression becomes our oppression. The refrain in 42, 43 is my soul is cast down. And 44, 25 says our soul is cast down. So it seems that the individual lament in 42 and 43 is widened in 44 for the faithful remnant to share in that lament together. They've experienced the same circumstances. In 44, 9 through 11, they've lost battles because Yahweh didn't fight for their armies. Some of them, at least, have been scattered among the nations. There's no mention of the destruction of the temple. So this is probably before that Babylonian victory. The individual in 42... Five is still in northern Israel, the land of Jordan and Hermon, on the northern border of Syria. But he can't get to Jerusalem for the festivals. So it makes me wonder if this is at the beginning of an invasion from Assyria, um, from Syria, Israel, when they were fighting, or Assyria later, who were carrying off captives uh, from the north as they marched south. It's impossible to tell, but whatever the case is, it's going very badly for God's people. So Psalm 44 is a national lament and a wisdom psalm. It's a lament for causing understanding. And that makes sense uh, because if we're going to be wise, we must understand how to lament. What do we do when the God who could end our suffering isn't ending our suffering? What do we do when it seems like God is sleeping on the job, like he has forgotten about us in our affliction? After Psalm 39, uh, which was a doozy to preach through last year, uh, and now 44, I'm praying to God to be assigned a happy psalm. I can't seem to get away from the laments, but that's life. A few weeks ago, I met with a 21-year-old who has had six surgeries that haven't really solved her constant pain. That same week, I learned that a missionary friend, uh, his cancer has metastasized and there are numerous tumors in his lungs. He's about my age with a wife and five kids and his diagnosis is terminal, uh, at least from human doctors. Another missionary friend got in a motorcycle accident, broke his neck, injured his spinal cord, and he's learning to use his limbs again. One of my high school students just last week, lost her mom to cancer. She was 41. My firstborn son had surgery on both wrists for carpal tunnel and is waiting for results uh, on genetic testing for a genetic uh, a connective tissue disorder. And this is just keeping it as a short list for now. Uh, some of our 
friends and family have contracted COVID-19, a few among millions, right? More than 172,000 deaths in our country in less than six months, really. A nine and a half percent drop in our economy in the second quarter, millions unemployed and underemployed, a series of unjust deaths followed by protests and riots. Our nation is full of disagreements, distrust, incivility. The culture continues to slide post-Christian, maybe even post-American. I mean, what a time to gain understanding through a national lament like Psalm 44. So let's pray. God, Wisdom comes from you. If we lack it, you told us to ask for it. I lack it. I don't understand all the ways to think and feel and pray in these sad times. So please give wisdom. Help us to hold all of your sacred words together in unity and in balance. Shape us by them. Form your heart in us. Teach us to lament. Make us the kind of people who can protest to you and praise you. Lament before you and thank you, like we see in Psalms 42, 43, and 44. Thank you for these words. Help us by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 44 is structured with four sections that are typical of laments. First, verses one through eight, open by expressing confidence in God's past salvation and present ability. Second, verses nine through 16, abruptly shift, lamenting God's rejection and their disgrace. Third, verses 17 through 22, lodge their complaints which is meant to motivate God to respond on their behalf. And fourth, verses 23 through 26 are the final plea for God's help. Confidence, lament, complaint, plea. So let's zoom in, I'll catch a few details to make sense of this movement, and then we'll transpose it into our key. Now that Christ has come, and yet we're waiting for him to come again. Finally, we'll pull some lessons from each of these sections. The psalm starts sweetly. Verse one, oh God, we, notice that we right out of the gate. We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. As a father, I love this opening, but their fathers were faithful to Deuteronomy six, where God commanded them to tell their children about his signs and wonders in the Exodus. That doesn't always happen. But these fathers were faithful and it had a profound effect on these worshipers. The father's evangelism grounded the next generation's faith in the midst of their tribulation. Verse two is very emphatic. It says, you, with your hand, you dispossessed nations. This reversed beyond the Exodus to the conquest of the land of Canaan in the time of Joshua, you afflicted the peoples, but them, our ancestors, you set free. You sent them out, spread them out to inherit their own portions of the promised land. And we know that only worked because God 
helped them miraculously, right? They were, uh, Israel was outnumbered by each of the seven people groups who inhabited that land. But those peoples were wicked. They committed abominations, all manner of sexual immorality, bestiality, even child sacrifice. And worst of all, they worshiped false gods. And after hundreds of years of patience with those unrepented peoples, God brought judgment on them by empowering Israel's armies. And the singers know to give God the credit. Verse three, acknowledge that the fathers didn't win the land by their own sword. It was God's right hand, God's arm. That's the language of the Exodus, right? With a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Now, God is spirit. Uh, he doesn't literally have an arm or a hand, but it signifies God exerting his power to get his work done. God redeemed them and planted them in the land by his hand, his arm, and verse three says, by the light of your face. It's also metaphorical, but, but we do this too, right? We know what it means if someone's face looks dark or bright. The light of God's face means he looked upon them favorably. He was pleased to give them the land. Halfway through this first section of confidence, verse four shifts from the past to the present. You are my king, oh God. It also shifts from our to my, but it'll go back to we. Uh, this is meant to be sung by each individual in the congregation as his own statement of faith. You are my king, oh God. The next verses, five through eight, double back over the language of the first three verses in uh, kind of like a reflection in a pool that makes verse four the, the shoreline. Verse four is the focal point or the, the apex of this first section. You are my king, O God. Command salvations for Jacob. Jacob's a nickname for Israel uh, since Jacob was the one renamed Israel. ESV's ordain here is uh, maybe a little too theological sounding for us. It's the verb for command and the noun form commandment. And salvations is plural. Command salvations. Give us as many victories as it takes. Right? Save us to the uttermost. You are the king of the universe. Just say the word and we'll be saved. It's amazing confidence here. Such trust. Just say the word and verse five will happen. Through you, we will push back our foes. Through your name, we will tread down those who rise up against us. Just like our ancestors. Verse six, I don't trust my own weapons. Verse seven, you have saved us. Verse eight, in God, we have boasted continually. They've shifted now from their ancestors' history to their own history. You have saved us. We have praised all day long. Then the second line moves from past celebration to future commitment, we will give thanks to your name forever. Not to our soldiers, not to false gods. We will give thanks to your name forever. All right, let's pack up and go home. Let's just end on that happy note. But verse nine starts the lament. Before we move to it though, think about all those statements of faith in that first section. They're coming from defeated, oppressed people. And they're not hypocrites. They're, they're not trying to pull one over on God, schmooze him. 
They really believe deep down that he has the power to speak their salvation into existence and he will, and they will give thanks forever. That's the faith of the Muscalim, those made wise by his word. But they're not there yet. God hasn't commanded their salvation yet. So in verse nine, start section two, the lament, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. He didn't do for them what he did for their ancestors, going to battle for them. They were on their own and they couldn't win on their own. And when the sovereign king of the universe makes a decision like that, I'm not going to give them victory, then he ultimately is responsible for their loss. Look at the subjects of the active verbs in verses 10 through 14. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for food. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people. You have made us the taunt. You have made us a byword. They don't try to redefine the sovereignty and providence of God because he is presiding over their suffering. He is who he is, right? He's the king. That just makes it more perplexing. Why would God decree our suffering instead of our victory? The language that they use in verses nine through 16 sets up their complaints in section three. And it shows this doesn't add up for them. I'll drop details in the notes that, that we'll post on Realm uh, because you should definitely double check all my work. But the words that they use about God causing them to turn back from the foe, to be sold, to be scattered among the nations, to be a taunt and a byword, these words echo the covenant curses laid out in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 give a list of blessings that God will give if they are faithful to the covenant and the curses that God will give if they're unfaithful to the covenant. So what's happening in section two is they are quoting back to God his own words and saying, we're getting the covenant curses. Verse 17, though, starts section three, the complaint, and says, all this has come upon us, all these covenant curses, even though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. The complaint is you've given us covenant curses when we should be getting the covenant blessings that you promised. And after the faith of the first eight verses, we would expect them to be blessed like he promised. But verse 17 says, we have not been false to your covenant. They haven't been hypocrites claiming to worship Yahweh and obey Yahweh when really they were going their own way. Verse 18, our steps have not departed from your path. Now let's be careful uh, not to assume that this is a claim of sinless perfection. It wasn't the case that any one sin would break the covenant. God in his grace put a mechanism in the covenant 
to justly appease his wrath for their sins. Animal sacrifice. The covenant law expects the people to sin, but they're still true to the covenant if they repent, confess, and bring the sacrifice that God's judgment demanded. Be such a merciful God that he wouldn't hold that kind of sinner guilty. He would forgive the repentant sinner day after day in a temporary way until Christ came to pay the ultimate price and be the final sacrifice. So they're not claiming to be sinless, but they are claiming to be blameless of breaching the covenant. Verse 20 explains what would be breaching the covenant. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our palms to a strange God, would not God search this out? Because he is knowing the secrets of the heart. They hadn't stopped calling on Yahweh, their covenant God. They hadn't dropped him to start calling on Baal or Molech or some other false God. That would break the covenant. And they're confessing that they know they wouldn't be able to get away with that. They wouldn't be able to get away with hypocrisy. I think Alan Ross is right that this section of the complaint reveals that God hasn't convicted their consciences. They are blameless. And they're arguing to God, you know we haven't committed apostasy. But, verse 22, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God is letting them die because of their association with him. He is worth it. They're not going to turn away. You are my king, oh God. You are my shepherd. So where is the green pasture? Why are your sheep being slaughtered? This doesn't add up for them. One plus one is not totaling two. You've promised blessing if we were faithful. We've been faithful, but you've given us defeats, deaths, deportations, and disgrace. That doesn't seem right. And their complaint sets up the fourth and final section, the plea for God to answer and act. And this plea is gutsy. But at the very end, it will become clear that it's not irreverent. Verse 23, rouse yourself. Why are you sleeping, my Lord? Wake up. What a thing to say. Notice that Lord is not in small caps. It's not translating the name Yahweh. It's actually the word Adonai, my Lord, my sovereign. But that makes the question a contradiction. If he's sleeping, he's not sovereign. He's not in charge. Stuff's just happening. But they confess their faith by calling him my sovereign. They know he doesn't really sleep. He doesn't run out of energy and need to recharge. Psalm 121.4, behold, he who keeps Israel will ne neither slumber nor sleep. But it seems like he's not keeping. It seems like he's sleeping. Wake up. Do not reject us forever. Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Remember verse 3 said that their ancestors inherited 
the land because of the light of his face. Now they're saying, why don't you look on us with favor? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? That's gutsy again, because God is all knowing. He forgets nothing. And when we compare it with verse 17, they said, we haven't forgotten you. Why have you forgotten us? And the teacher in me wants to know why. Because God never does injustice. If in the covenant from Sinai, God gave Israel over to an enemy in battle, then they deserved it. He's just. He is faithful to his covenant promises. If they're right that they've been faithful, which in contrast to the confession and so many laments, this scripture seems to want us to believe that they've been faithful. Then I think they, they must be the faithful remnant in the midst of an unfaithful nation. The unfaithful wouldn't be singing this psalm with them. The faithful didn't deserve this, but they're experiencing the effects of God's judgment on the nation as a whole. You can find in the notes uh, examples of this in Isaiah 8 and Habakkuk 3. I think they're asking, why are we suffering like the rest? For our soul is bowed down, ESV renders verse 25. This is the same Hebrew that they translated, my soul is cast down in 42, 43. Here it's plural. Our soul is cast down to the dust. That's where the serpent is supposed to be. Our enemies are supposed to lick the dust, but our belly clings to the ground. Many of their soldiers literally face down on the ground and their survivors felt like it. Verse 26, rise up, be help for us. The basic sense of this help verb is to do for someone what he can't do for himself. When the army can't win, God's help is his intervention to miraculously give them victory. And that's what the remnant calls on here. Rise up. Don't just sit there. Get up and do something. Intervene. And the last plea, ransom us. Ransom means to pay the price, to set free from bondage or to rescue from death. Sometimes it's used without a sense that an actual payment will be made, but that's the foundation of the figure of speech. They're saying, whatever it costs, get us out of this trouble. Even though their soul is downcast, they haven't given up their confidence in God. They're still praying to their king. And they say why they believe he'll answer these prayers. Ransom us, because of your steadfast love. This last line proves that they are not embittered. They don't distrust God's heart. They're not letting their circumstances change what they know to be true of God. They don't think he's spiteful. He's love, always love, steadfast love, chesed. This one Hebrew word, takes two English words to translate because on the one hand, it describes a compassionate affection 
often for someone in a pitiable state. And on the other hand, that affection, that love motivates faithfulness. And when someone enters into covenant with another, that obligates him to show chesed, to be loyal in loving kindness. When God entered into a covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, he said, this is his glory. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and doing loyal love for those who love me. Even suffering, these psalmists still trusted God to be faithful to his covenant, to ransom them and give them the victory over their enemies and grant them peace in the promised land because of his loyal love. We can transpose this song into a new covenant key. We can actually do the first section of confidence even better than they could because the son of God roused himself. He came down and he ransomed us. He paid the price to set us free from our bondage to sin and death. The enemy of our souls, the devil and his demons had won victories when they inspired Adam to sin against God and we followed suit. Our sins deserved judgment because God is just. And Jesus was willing to be the ultimate sheep for slaughter in our place. He was crucified in our place to cancel out our sins, which defeated the devil who accused us. There's nothing left to accuse on the cross. Christ canceled out our sins. And Colossians 2 says that he triumphed over the enemy on the cross. Jesus was buried. And on the third day, God the Father raised him back to life. He ascended to his throne and he reigns as the king of heaven and earth. And he's returning soon to save fully those who trust him and serve him. The apostle Paul celebrated in Romans 3 that we've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Yet in Romans 8, he said, we're still groaning. We're still groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies at Christ's return. There are still reasons to lament, but we can have confidence in Christ's love. Paul actually quoted Psalm 44 in Romans 8.36 because Christians were regarded as sheep for slaughter. It's amazing. In the midst of this lament, Paul actually quoted our psalm to say that even being slaughtered, it does not separate you from God's love in Christ. Even being slaughtered, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us, 837. Because nothing can separate believers from God's love in Christ, 838 and 39. He will redeem our bodies we will be glorified on a perfect new earth. So this was, this was the second time for me to preach a lament with, without being able to address the bigger questions of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. And I know those are hard. Scripture has a lot of help for us there. And I'd love to dialogue with it about you if that's hanging you up. So would your pastors, your city group leaders, 
But the aim today was to faithfully expound the assigned text. And Psalm 44 can increase our understanding. So let's quickly consider some of the lessons that we can pull from this in our own tribulations. From section one, confidence. Fathers and mothers, disciple your children. You don't have to be a Bible teacher or a pastor. Just read the word to your kids and show them that you believe it and you treasure the one who gave it to us. Because in Psalm 44, the parents teaching about what God had done in the past grounded the next generation's faith in their own distress that God is strong and he is love. Your kids are gonna need that. We all need that. We need to know biblical history, verses one through three. And we need to have a personal history with God that moves us to pledge allegiance to him as our king, verses four through eight. So be disciples who disciple your children and remind yourselves of what God has done for you and praise him for it. Even in distress, praise him. Lessons from sections two and three, the lament and complaint, pray scripture. They quoted Leviticus and Deuteronomy back to God. But know that we don't have the same covenant, right? We don't have the same blessings, curses situation that the sons of Korah had. The church doesn't have one national land. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a city here. We're waiting for new Jerusalem to come down out of heaven with King Jesus, we're not promised military victories now like they were in that covenant. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12. So pray scripture, being careful about the covenantal differences. But like these, these singers, I almost said sinners, that too. Um, but like these singers, know that your suffering is not necessarily punishment for your personal sin. But go ahead and ask. <laughs> ask if there's anything to repent of and do that, but know that the blameless still suffer. King Jesus taught us to expect tribulations in this life. So know the word, especially the new covenant, and pray it. From section four, the plea, pray gutsy prayers. Remember, uh, the Romans 9.20 warns, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? There's a way to pray the things in Psalm 44 from unbelief and bitterness. But the Spirit may inspire a hurting heart that trusts God's loyal love to say something like, why are you sleeping? Wake up. So don't be afraid of raw prayers, even as you remind your heart that if you are in Christ, then God is for you and not against you. He's never really asleep. Even if you don't know why, he's letting something happen like these singers. Know that he is never not good to you. He is always answering your prayers in the best ways possible according to his unlimited wisdom and his unfailing love. And nothing will keep him from loving you. Lastly, lament on your own and lament together. Psalm 42, 43 was an individual lament and 44, a congregational lament. We need both. 
So if you are here today and you've been lamenting on your own and you need to lament with someone, grab me or, or my wife or someone with a lanyard. We'll have prayer over on this side uh, after uh, this moment here. Grab someone and we'll help carry your burden. You don't have to suffer alone. We don't want you to grieve alone. If you feel like God has not been fighting your battles for you, then we wanna help you trust his loyal love. And let's, let's get all together and pray about things bigger than us. Lament for things that are going on in our city and our nation in this world at odds with God as we seek his kingdom to come. If you have not pledged allegiance to Christ as king and trusted him for salvations, then do that now. Please talk it out with me, somebody that you trust here. He is worthy. Let's pray.